thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be back here in Los Angeles. Uh, I have to admit, I don't often pull up in a red Mustang to uh, events like this. But uh, if you're in Los Angeles, you have to you have to adapt to the culture of Los Angeles. So, uh, as some of you might know, this this was planned a little bit last minute this year, like. Uh, when did you find out about it? This morning. morning. This morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, I said he knew before me then. <laughs> but it's uh, it's very good to be here. I want to start off, you're never supposed to start off in a shear by apologizing. But I, I do want to apologize only because a combination of jet lag and preparing this shear at 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know how this is going to come out. I, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about, but if it doesn't make any sense to you, it could be that it doesn't make any sense to me. So don't take it uh, don't take it the wrong way if you don't understand, because I'm not sure I understand. But we'll we'll work through it together, and maybe it'll make sense to us together. The pasuk in this week's parsha says, "Kol hanefesh lebeis Yaakov habam mitzrayma shivim." Many of us already know this. We're familiar with this from the Haggadah. That after Yosef Atzadik revealed themselves to his brothers in perhaps the most climactic moment in the entire Torah, when he says, "I'm Yosef, sent for Yaakov Avinu, and Yaakov Avinu comes down with Shivim Nafesh. He comes down with seventy souls. Later on in Parshas Dvarim, in recounting this event, Moshe Rabbeinu says, "B'Shivim Nefesh Yardu Avosecha." Seventy souls came down to Mitzrayim. So the question is, what's this idea of 70? Because we know the Gemara Mbalabasar already points out that if you count the amount of people that actually came down, it wasn't 70, but it was rather 69. And there's different pshatim that are offered as to who was the 70th. Was it Yaakov Avinu? Was it HaKadosh Baruch himself coming into Dallas with Klal Yisrael? The Gemara Mbalabasar suggests, as many of you know, that it was Yochevet, who was born in Benachomos. She was born between the borders of Canaan and Mitzrayim. So there's two questions over here. Question number one is, what's the idea that Yocheved was born sort of between the borders? What's that, like, what's that teaching us? And the second is, the Torah is very specific. If the Torah says that something is 70, so that means that there's the quality of 70 to it. Does that make sense? In other words, every number in the Torah has a meaning. So if you see that something is 4, or 7, or 10, right, all of those things, or 8, right, all of those numbers indicate a particular meaning. 70 has a particular meaning. If the Torah wanted to convey to us that it was 69 people, the Torah would have said 69. The fact that Yocheved was born Ben Achamos, and the Torah chooses to call that 70, even though she's not counted within the number, means that Yocheved, in a certain sense, obviously she's Min Aminyan, but she's... What makes it into 70? The Torah puts the dagesh, the emphasis, on the 70. So the question is, what's the inner nature of the number 70, and what does 70 have to do with going down to Mitzrayim? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So our two questions are, number one, what's the inner significance of the fact that Yocheved was born in Ben Achonos? And number two, what's the relationship of 70 to going down to Mitzrayim? Now we see 70 a number of times in the Torah. One of the most famous times that we see 70 is, comes up on Purim a lot, because we know that Nichnas Yayin, Yatzasod. 
So yayin is the gematria 70, and sod is the gematria 70. So anytime you see the number 70 in the Torah, so there's a certain revelation of a secret. So it must be, as we're unpacking this together, it must be that if the Torah tells us that 70 people went down to Mitzrayim, that there's some sort of secret embedded in going down to Mitzrayim. In other words, there's a revelation of a secret that occurs within the Golis itself. Not even, I want to, ref, I want to make that a little bit more clear. 70 is the going down to the Golis, right? So it's not just within the Golis, but going down into Golis is the process of entering into a secret, which means to say entering into the, revel to the revelation of a secret. Because what is a once you know a secret, it's not a secret anymore, right? But you could know something that's a secret. So if somebody says to you, this is a secret, so it's not a secret to you, but it is a secret to everybody else. Which means that the process of Klal Yisrael going down into Mitzrayim is a secret. It's sort of like a secret that Klal Yisrael is being let into. It's like a whisper, so to speak, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm telling you this secret. Nobody else in the world, world understands this, but this is the secret that exists between Klal Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We see the number 70 in a number of places. We see, first of all, there's 70 nations of the world. And we see that there's also 70 members of the Sanhedrin. So the idea of 70, in a certain sense, has to do with, A, the entire world, but it also has to do with a particular aspect of wisdom. There's 70 members of the Sanhedrin means that within this secret that we're talking about, there's a certain wisdom that's discovered within the 70. So the 70 sages, the 70 Chachamim, that make up the Sanhedrin, they are, so to speak, the holders of the wisdom of this secret. We haven't discussed what the secret is, but whatever it is, wherever you see the number 70, it means it's the wisdom that's embedded within that secret. Rabbi Nachman says, and this is where it starts to get a little bit deep, and this is where it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was like, I think I understand this idea, but I'm not 100%, but this is like a really like big idea here. We know that there's Shivim Panim Latara. So, what does it mean that there's Shivim Panim Latara? What does it mean that there's 70 approaches? Judaism is a 70-lane is a highway, so to speak. So, within this wisdom that we're speaking about, of this secret... There's 70 different roads to take to get into this wisdom. Uh, what would be a good example of this? A good example of this might be, um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to therapy before. You don't have to raise your hand. You can just quietly like, acknowledge it to yourself. But if you've ever been to therapy, so sometimes you'll show up at a therapist's office, and the therapist will be like, what do you want to talk about today? And you'll be like, I've got five things I want to talk about, but we only have 45 minutes. And so there's a line that therapists use, which I think is very beautiful. Think of yourself as a mansion, and think of yourself as having many doors to that mansion. So it doesn't really matter which door you take. No matter which door you take, you end up in the mansion. So some doors are the doors of the kitchen, some doors are the doors that go into the dining room, into the living room. But either way, it's all the same mansion that you walk into. So when we say there's 70 faces of the Torah, Shivan Pan La Torah, that means that there's 70 different entrance points into this wisdom of the Torah, right? But that part I think I understand well, but here's the part where it gets to be a little bit more hazy. In a certain sense, this means 
that every single Jew experiences a dimension of prophecy. Okay, why is that? Because let's not think of prophecy for a moment as like knowing the future. Let's think of prophecy just for a minute of having such absolute clarity that the future becomes obvious. You hear the difference? In other words, in a certain sense, we're restricted by time. So in other words, I can only see so far because there's a certain amount of space that I can see and there's a certain amount of time that I could see within. Of course, as you get a little bit older, your vision expands, right? So let's say, for example, you have, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but let's say you have a 16-year-old girl, and she's like, no, I'm for sure, I know for sure that if I do this, this is the way it's going to turn out. But then you get a little bit older, and you're like, it's for sure not going to turn out that way. It's going to turn out the exact opposite of what you think. And I just want to point that out, because I, I do this for a living. I look at you for a living. You look at me, but I look at you for a living. So just now, there were two very different reactions, or three reactions. There was people that had no reaction at all, and then there was the girls who were a little bit older that were like, oh, like this. yeah, I remember when I was a high school doofus, so I thought this is the way life worked. And then there were the parents, and you all like did this. You're like, it was like a look of like, like grave disappointment. <laughs> like, why, why don't they see? I, I grew up, I was a very ADHD kid, so one of the things about ADHD children is they don't know that their actions have consequences. So my mother's like refrain in my life was your actions have consequences. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, no, but this time it's going to be different. Like I'm not, I trust me, mom, I'm not going to get caught this time. And of course I always got caught. I was like the world's worst, you know, you know, like some kids are really good at lying and then some kids lie, but they're terrible at it. So I was the world's worst liar. The only person that believed me was my mother. But the, the, the idea, thank you very much for coming with me on that. I appreciate it. The, the idea that you get older and you have an expanded sense of wisdom, there's a certain prophecy-like quality to it. Does that make sense? In other words, you're able to see into the future a little bit more. You can see the consequences. You could see how things are developing. I just, right now we're living in a particularly, I don't know what word, I guess we could be honest, right? There's a little bit of, not a little bit, I think there's more than a little bit of fear in the air, right? Uh, I'm traveling now from Eretz Yisrael and I'm I'm sort of wondering, even here in Los Angeles, I'm wondering, you know, what it's going to be like to walk in the streets with a yarmulke, what it's going to be like to walk through the airports, you know, what, like, what do people think about me as I'm walking through the airports? I, I was much more confident six months ago walking through the airports than I am today. And there's a certain, a certain wisdom right now of thinking of, like, what was happening in the late 20s, early 30s in Germany, right? What did it feel like? And we're sort of, I think, all wondering to ourselves, like, how do you read the tea leaves here? Like, what's the wisdom of the future? A certain sense of prophecy. Like, how do we expand our consciousness to be able to, and for those adults in the room that just took a deep breath, I want you to know I'm, I'm taking a deep breath also. Like, even being here, you should know there was a siren Friday night in my neighborhood. You know, I'm, I'm here 6,000, 7,000 miles away from my family. You know, Matzah Shabbos, I'm like on the phone messaging my wife, like, okay, like what happened? You know, like, it's, it's hard to be away. There's a certain wisdom that we're trying to sort of predict the future now. So, I mean, Ahmed points out that when the Pasuk says, Beshivim Nefesh, I want to make sure I get this exactly right, I don't mess this up. When it says, Beshivim Nefesh, Yardu Avosecha, that's Rashi Tebos Navik. That 70 souls went down to Mitzrayim, Beshivim Nefesh, Yardu Avosecha, is Rashi Tebos Navik. So the 70 souls going down to Mitzrayim, those 70 souls that will counteract 
the 70 nations of the world, these 70 souls that are entering into the wisdom of Gaulus, that are being told now the secret of Gaulus, it gives them a perspective on all of the future. Does this, you see how it, like everything ties in together? So I say again, so I myself want to say, for, for me I want to say, even though some of you look like, I, I think I lost you there. But I'll say it for you and I'll say it for me, but also for myself. There's 70 nations of the world. The 70 souls that go down to Mitzrayim are, again, we balance out the 70 nations of the world. 70 is the gematria of secret. Right? So does the gematria of 70. We're entering into the secret of Gullus. Within 70, there's a wisdom. The 70 chachamim of the Sanhedrin. There's a wisdom that we need to learn. That's the shivim panam Torah, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. But that wisdom gives us a glimpse into the future. It gives us a perspective of what's going to be. Did we do better? A little bit better? Okay, I, even for myself, it was a little bit better. So I, I want to try to unpack this and, and explain as follows. What, what, is this, what is this wisdom? What is this wisdom that we're all trying to get to here? In the Brisbane Abbasarim, Avram Avinu was offered a choice. There are two options for your children. And remember that the Brisbane of Sarim is the this is the covenant that's being made with Avram Avinu. It's this is an unexpected thing. If one makes a covenant with somebody, we don't expect to talk about terrible things that are going to happen. But Avram Avinu is given a choice, and the choice is um, Gehenim or Gallus. What do you want your children to endure? Do you want your children to endure? Gehenna Marvelous. It's embarrassing, but you could just go for it. <laughs> because anyway, they're talking about it, so you could just make a decision. Right? That's, that's a good decision also. And Avram Avinu chooses Gaulus. The shadow is, what's, what's Avram Avinu choosing over here? What's that choice of Gehenna Marvelous? So, the Tzara Shavre, the connection between Gehenna and Gaulus is as follows. Both Gehenna and Gaulus are a process of refinement. I think people misunderstand Gehenna. Let's, let's just talk for a second about what Gehenna is, even though it's not the topic of our conversation. Gehenna is the process through which the soul reacclimates to the world of souls. All of our neshamos come from a place called Olam HaNeshamos. You've heard of this? There's a world called Olam HaNeshamos. That's where your soul returns to after you die. While the soul is in a body down here in this world, the soul becomes slowly acclimated to being in a body. And that's a very disorienting thing for a soul, because a soul, in a certain sense, doesn't feel like it belongs in a body at first. So what can this be compared to? So the best comparison is a diamond in a Tiffany's box in a Tiffany store where the light is perfectly, not a lamp-grown diamond, like an, like an actual diamond, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, we don't want to be too, like, I don't want to say it, but like everyone wants a diamond. Nobody wants a lab-grown diamond. But you get the lab-grown diamond, because it doesn't really make a difference. But let's say you have a perfect diamond in a Tiffany's box. I'm sorry that I touched clo too close to home for some of you. Like, no, I'm okay with it. I think I'm okay with it. No, I'm probably not okay with it, but I don't want to say that I'm okay with it. You know what I'm saying? That whole, like, uh, that whole game. I have, I have this question now that I'm getting from the Tommy. Rebbe, she says she doesn't care, but I'm... I'm not sure if what she says is what she means. I'm like, welcome to marriage, buddy. <laughs> this is just the beginning of not understanding the language of the other half of the species. <laughs> and then, like, I did what you told me. I know I said that, but, like, there was also a part of me that wanted to... <laughs> Nobody knows what you're talking about. Anyway, the, uh, or 50% of the species doesn't know what you're talking about. 
Your head understands it. Okay, so <laughs> a diamond in a Tiffany's box is very comfortable. It makes sense to a diamond, so to speak, to be in a Tiffany's box, right? But a diamond is not meant to be in a Tiffany's box. Where's a diamond meant to be? A diamond is meant to be on a hand. But there's a process that a diamond has to go through to understanding that it makes more sense to be on a hand than it does to be in a box. What's the difference? So the difference is as follows. In a box, the diamond's beauty is reflected perfectly. On a hand, the diamond is not reflect, its beauty is not reflected perfectly, but it reflects the beauty of the person perfectly. You hear the difference? Does that make sense? In other words, when you give a beautiful piece of jewelry to somebody, the jewelry is actually diminished. The person is enhanced. So the question is, how do you see, how does the soul see itself? When the soul comes down into this world, the soul says, I don't belong here because my beauty has been diminished. But what does the soul learn? The soul learns, my beauty might be diminished, but my purpose is enhanced because now I'm in a body, animating a body, doing a mitzvah that I couldn't possibly do as long as I was in the Olam Shamos. So far so good? Mm -hmm. The problem is that the soul becomes acclimated to being in a body. So the soul gets used to things that are not soulful things. So for example, in the beginning of the soul's life, if somebody would come, oh, that's wonderful. I was hoping we would have a baby come for shoot. That's our first year. This is the baby's first year? Yes. How old is the baby? Oh, wow. Okay, so this is mamish for this baby. So when, the soul, when that baby's soul comes down into this world, and somebody knocks on the door and says, uh, can I have money because I have nothing to eat? What's the natural reaction of the soul? You want to eat? That's not a soulful thing to do. A soul doesn't understand the concept of being down in the coarse physical world. Of course, what the soul learns from the world is that there's more godliness in the world than there is in the Olam HaNashamos. Right? Because the infinity of God is best reflected where? Not in the spiritual worlds, that's where God is obvious. The infinity of God is best expressed in the physical world where God's presence is not obvious. I'll explain to you in, the, in relationship terms. How do you know when you really love your husband? When things are going well? No. When you're dating, you have no idea if you really love him. That, that's just cute. That's like both of you putting on a good act, right? Um, do you know you love him in the beginning of marriage? No, the beginning of marriage is like playing house, right? And then you have like a kid and you're like, okay, we have, it's a cute, we have like a baby now, right? Talk to me when you have like five kids and you're outnumbered and you haven't slept in years, right? And you're snapping at each other and there's pressure, right? And things have become distant, the communication becomes harder. And the only thing that you talk about is the kids and the challenges that they have, right? And you start to forget at some point, how did we get together to begin with? I sometimes look at my life and go, how did I get here? I was 18 years old and I think I was a cool kid and now I'm overweight with a beard in Los Angeles going to this year. Like it doesn't, it doesn't exactly make sense. You'll have this, you're younger, but I'm telling you, you'll come with me on this. You, you turn around, a little too close to home, thanks. The, uh, you can tell I'm jelly? Yeah. The, the idea that you become acclimated to a world that's not your own and that you somehow remain loyal to each other, that's real love, right? So the infinity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is expressed not in the spiritual worlds, that's not impressive. 
When a person can find godliness in the coarse physical world, that's impressive. A couple that stays married for 30, 40, 50 years through all the good times and the bad times and the really bad times, right? The couple that continues to make the choice to stay with each other even under really difficult circumstances, that reflects the love that the couple really has for each other. The soul, the soul comes down into this world and it realizes that there's more infinity in this world, so to speak, I obviously can't have more infinity, but there's a greater expression of godliness in this world than there is in the spiritual worlds. Of course, the challenge is that the soul has spent a lot of time down here in the physical world. So there's a process called Gehenim where the soul has shaved away, so to speak, its coarse physicality that it's become accustomed to. Gehenim is not a bad thing. If you think about it, like, let's say, for example, you put a shirt in the wash, right? Let's say that shirt could flop or experience things. If you put a shirt in the wash, what are you really saying? You're saying it's a good shirt. It just needs to be cleaned a little bit. It got a stain. It needs to go through this uncomfortable process of returning to its pristine self. Gehenim is not a bad thing. I remember years ago when I was 18 years old, I went to the Meshkir of the Yeshiva, and I said, I'm definitely going to Gehenim. You know, it's like one of those, like, you know, like, wake up 18-year-old moments where you're like, I'm in big trouble. And like, I was bad for the last four years, right? And you, like, come from, it's like that, like, January time type of conversation you have with, like, a teacher in seminary or something, right? And I was like, I'm going to Gehenim. And I remember Meshkir person goes, me too. So was, he's like, we'll be there together. Like, we'll hang out. You know, I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? Gehenim is a bad thing. He's like, well, it's a painful thing. It's a painful experience. But unless you're a tremendous tzaddik whose soul never became acclimated to the world, everyone goes through Gehenim because it's what allows you re-entry into the world of the Olam HaNashamas. It's the refinement. It, it, it cuts away from the physicality of life so that you can return to factory settings and once again be comfortable within the Olam HaNashamas where you can then attain the first part of the scar that you get, which is ultimately going to be an Olam Haba, but there's a certain delight, a certain pleasure that the soul gets from being at, back in Shemaim. It's the pleasure of the diamond being in the Tiffany's box. That was one choice for Avram Avinu. In other words, the Brisbane of the Sarim begins with HaKadosh Baruch Hu telling Klal Yisrael, telling Avram Avinu, your children must be involved in the physical world. That's the job of a Jew. Medjushim Parshas Naso says, Nesave HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lios Loyos Baruch Dir B'Tachtainim. What does HaKadosh Baruch Hu desire? A dwelling place in the world down below. Where is the mission statement of a Jew? The world down below. To be a Jew means you have to be involved in the world. If a Jew removes themselves from the world, that's not being very Jewish. We don't believe in going to a mountaintop and just meditating and deep breathing. I know there's a lot of that going on in the world today. It's like these deep breathing exercises, and we're going to attain some sort of like metamorphosis. It's it's not. It's much more impressive to give a to give an ani a dollar on the street than it is to sit there doing deep breathing yoga techniques. Like it, it, I, I get it, and like I'm all I'm all in on mindfulness, and if that's the if that's what like gets you to like a place of serenity so that you could serve God. That's beautiful, but we are a religion that says you have to get involved in the physical things of this world. Every single thing in Judaism involves the physical world. We make Kiddush over wine. We make brachos over food. Every single thing we do involves the physical world. We put mezuzahs on our hands. We put tefillin on our arms. There's nothing in our world that's not physical because the, the destination of Judaism is down here in this world. We're not like Muslims and Christians where there's some sort of thing that you want to get in Shemaim. Remember that the soul recognizes 
that coming down here is the ultimate destination, which is why the Ramban writes that Olam Haba is down here in this world. Olam Hazeh is the world as it currently is. Olam Haba is the world as it will one day be. So we're not a religion that's eschewing the physicality of the world, the exact opposite. The destination of Judaism is down here in this world. But if we're down here in this world, naturally we're going to become physical. And if we become physical, then our soul needs a refinement. So option number one that Avram rejects is Gehenna. Because what we want is for the soul to remain godly. But Avram says, no, Gehenna is not a good choice. We'll take Gullus. Now let's just unpack that for a second. Gullus has been pretty long, you know? Like, Gehenna is 11 months max. Gullus has been for several thousand years, right? 210 years of Mitzrayim was cut short. And because it was cut short, that's a deep tire for a different time. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu wanted Rabbi Kiva to be the one to take us out of Mitzrayim. Because since Rabbi Kiva had reached the 50th level of Bina, Rabbi Kiva was capable of taking us out of the 50th level of Toma. Moshe Rabbeinu only reached the 49th level of Bina, so Moshe Rabbeinu was only capable of pulling us out of the 49th level of Toma. So Moshe Rabbeinu, the Medjish says, went to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and said, have Rabbi Kiva take them out of Mitzrayim, because this way we could have done our 400 years, we would have reached the 50th level of Tumul, we would have become the most physical, and Rabbi Kiva would have been able to take us out. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I can only take them out of the 49th level. Mamela, we were cut short at 210 years. The remaining 190 years of Gaulus Mitzrayim have been spread out over the last several thousand years. So what we're experiencing today is actually the remnants of Gaulus Mitzrayim. So everything we're experiencing now is those last 190 years. But because the Olus Mitzrayim was so intense, the Holocaust was a, was a day in the park relative to Mitzrayim. If you read any of the Midrashim of what was going on in Mitzrayim, it, it's wild. I, I highly recommend, um, everyone has these fancy schmancy Haggadahs today. I highly recommend, there's a beautiful Haggadah that I think was illustrated by Rabbi Chait. You know what I'm talking about? I do. You know, is that not an amazing, it's, it's horrible, right? It's, it's, yeah, you don't want to show that to your little... Right, you, you want it, but you want, you want to see it at some point in your life, because it's really graphic. Like what it, is it? It's, it's, uh, I forget the name of the Haggadah. It's a Baruch Chait's Haggadah. It's an illustrated Haggadah, but it really brings it to life. It's like, it's horrifying it's in a certain sense. Yeah, but that's what it was. Every day, every day, like, we had, let's say, for example, not to compare on any level, and obviously October 7th was the greatest tragedy, Simchat Torah was the greatest tragedy in a single day since the Holocaust. But the amount of Jews, if you do the math, the amount of Jews that died on Simchas Torah was half of an average day during the Holocaust. Half. And if you think about the worst day of the Holocaust, that's a walk in the park relative to Mitzrayim. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, okay, we're going to take these 190 years, we're going to spread it out over a course of several thousand years, in four iterations of four different colleagues. And why in the world would Avram Avinu choose that? I'd personally much rather go through Gehenna then go through a Holocaust, the Crusades, uh, you know, pogroms. You know, we, we're coming up on, uh, on Christmas. And for those, I think some of you may have heard us share about Christmas from the, you know, if you study the origins of Christmas, it's a horrific day for, for Israel, historically speaking. It's like, uh, before I knew about it, I, I remember that uh, I took my wife on a date to the Bronx Zoo. In, uh, in December time, because they light up the Bronx Zoo with like tremendous Christmas lights, and it's very beautiful. And it was like a, a yeshivish date back in the day. It was like a known thing, like, oh, you'll go to the Bronx Zoo in December. First of all, that's a terrible idea. It's freezing cold outside. Walking through the Bronx Zoo at night, totally, somebody yeah, could go on that date. Yeah, it's totally not a move. Uh, I, thought, I thought I was like so smooth. I was like, I'll be so good. I'll take her to the Bronx Zoo. It was freezing. 
and you're looking at these Christmas lights, and then you get older, and you're like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> like, it's not like a, that's not the thing I should be looking at. But to to think about that, that Avraham Avinu had the opportunity to choose Gehenna, and he chose Gullus. What in the world is that? So the idea of Gullus is as follows: Gullus is a different type of refinement than the refinement of Gehenna, because the refinement of Gehenna is passive. And the refinement of Gullus is active. Mm-hmm. So in Gehenna, you're not actually doing anything. In Gehenna, the soul goes through a process where it is cleansed. It has its worldliness, its physicality removed from it. But you're not actually a participant in it. Masha'in came in Gullus. When a person goes down into Gullus, the secret of Gullus, and this is the, this is the whole idea of 70, is Tyra is discovered within Gaulus. So if you think about it, let's say, for example, let's take a look at Gaulus Mitzrayim, right? So, of course we know that the Avos followed Kalatara Kula, the Gemara says, before the giving of the Torah. But the Medrash says that it was only like a smell. It only had like the Reach. It, didn't, it wasn't the, the physical mitzvah that we have today. Something changed by Harsinai. The mitzvahs took on physical form. The, the Avos kept the Torah, but not necessarily in a physical way. They kept the ideas, they were tapped into the spirituality of a mitzvah. When did the mitzvah come into its full richness? That only happened by Arsinai. In order to get to Arsinai, you need to go through Golis Mitzrayim. Right? So there's, if you want to be a little Kabbalistic about it, so when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, he created the world with ten utterances. By the Mabel, those ten utterances were broken. They fell into Mitzrayim. Hashkacha made Klal Yisrael go down to Mitzrayim to gather those ten utterances. Those ten utterances, the Maral says, were rectified during the ten Makos, and ultimately were rebuilt in the form of the Aseris Adibros that we received by our Sinai. So we went from the very beginning of creation to the Torah. The Torah is something that's revealed from within Gaulus. In other words, a Jew who goes down into exile discovers the Torah within the exile, discovers the 70 Chachamim of the Sanhedrin, discovers the Shivim Panam La Torah, discovers a worldview and a perspective of Nevuah. Why is that? Why is Torah only discovered from within Gaulus? So we alluded to it before, but I'm going to try to spell it out a little bit more clearly now. There's a certain, there's a little bit of a sophisticated idea. You can come with me on this? I know it's like Sunday afternoon. But we could, we could try for something a little bit deep? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> that. that. I feel very validated right now. I appreciate you holding space for me in this way, in this time. Um, so it goes something like this. The world, the physical world, proclaims its own existence. It says... I exist and there is no God. That's what the physical world proclaims. When you look at this table, you don't see anything godly about the table. right? If you see, if you see a, a river and the river is going downstream, why is the river going downstream? Because of gravity. Right? That's the nature of the way a river operates. Even though you'll see a tremendous amount of plan and purpose within the world, we don't know exactly why the plan and purpose is the way it is. Right? So, a person could say, logically, I can see that this world has a design to it, right? And so a person could say, there's a design, and there's a designer. But we have no idea from the design itself that there's a God, because the nature of the design is that it hides God. So the word olam means hell, it means hidden, right? So in other words, 
it's very popular, it's very in vogue today to be like, there's a proof of God because wherever there's a design, there's a designer. But if you think deeply, really it's the exact opposite. The nature of the design of this world, and this is what science basically is doing today, even though this is very misguided, what science is basically trying to do is to limit the entire world into something that's understandable. And they're doing an amazing job, right? So they've gotten very, very close to the beginning right now, right? They're stuck at that final point, right? How did this whole thing start, right? But up until that, everything in the known universe right now is explainable, and we're, we're explaining it on levels that it's never been explained before. If you listen to the atheists of today, they're saying the only things that we can't explain are the things that we haven't yet explained, but soon we'll be able to explain everything. They're trying to take everything and make it into the known. So the nature of the world is that it hides God. So here's the big secret. Why does it do that? Why does it do that? So the author Rebbe said as follows, and this is such a world-changing idea, it's, it's mind-boggling. You ready for it? There's only one thing in existence that truly exists, and that's Hashem Himself. So the world, which is the creation of God, bears the mark of its maker. I'll say it again, this is a very deep idea. Why does the world proclaim its own existence? Why does it say, I exist independently? Because there's only one existence that actually exists independently, and that's God. So when God creates something, the thing that he creates bears his mark. And what is the mark of God? The mark of God is, I exist independently of anything else. So naturally, the thing that God creates will do what? It will do exactly what its maker says. So the world itself says, I exist independently from anything else. So the arrogance of the world is really a reflection of what? It's, a devi it's, it's, not a, it's not a perfect alignment, right? Obviously, it's wrong. But why is the world so arrogant? Why does the world say, I proclaim my own existence? Because that's what its maker did. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the secret of Gullus is as follows, and this is all of Tyre. If you look at the world, and you see the world for what it appears to be, then you cannot see God. Then it's possible to not see God. It's possible to look at the physical world and go, I don't see any God, right? Because that's the nature of the world. The secret of Gullus is that the deeper you get into the physicality of the world, the more you understand it, the more you realize that the lack of godliness is the greatest expression of godliness. Did you hear it? I feel like only 30% of you got it. You got it for sure. Yeah. You were definitely locked in. I want to say it again. I want to make sure you were like, yeah. you were, it was, I want you to know it was very helpful to me. There's always, there's always that person in the audience that's going like this. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Like one person died, right? And then I always like, kind of like, you step like, okay, so like from her, 30%, right? That's, that's yeah. basically yeah. what I did. I'll say it one more time because it's a very sophisticated idea. The deeper you get into something, the more you understand it for its true nature. I know how to explain this. I know how to explain this. This is a great one, yeah? Uh, I'm sure none of you have ever spoken to a guy, but if you have, well, some of you have spoken to guys, obviously, but for the remainder of you, right? You know how, like, a guy, I shouldn't say this, it's not nice to say it this way, but I'm just going to say it this way. You know how a guy could be good looking until he opens his mouth? Yeah. yeah. yeah right? <laughs> Thank you for coming with me. Yeah. You know, you know, like, like, there's like a guy, he's like a good looking guy, and then like he opens up and he's like, yeah, we're always good. You know what I'm saying? Why is that? There's a certain arrogance 
there's a certain <laughs> arrogance that once it's ex once it expresses itself, it's deeply uncomfortable to be around, right? It's like there's no space for you. There's no like there's no place where I could possibly be with you like that. It's deeply uncomfortable. But let's say for whatever reason you decided to stay within that relationship. What happens the deeper you get into that relationship? What happens to that arrogance? You realize it's not arrogance at all. What is it really? Insecurity. Insecurity, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, and the greater the arrogance, the greater the insecurity, right? So you have this guy, and I'll, I'll just make up a story about him, right? And he's like this ripped gym rat, right? And he's like, you know, wealthy driving like the biggest escalator, let's say a red Ford Mustang, right? The, uh, <laughs> and, and really you know that the greater the arrogance, the greater the insecurity. So you have this huge hulking man who's a terrified little child. That's what he is, right? And, in a certain perverse way, the deeper you get into the relationship, the more you don't even see the arrogance. All you see is the insecurity. And so what happens is that some people are looking from the outside going, I don't understand how she's dating that guy. Like, isn't he so arrogant? You speak to that girl and they go, he's not arrogant at all. He's a tiny little baby. He was crying to me just the other night, right? It's like, no, that guy doesn't cry. He doesn't cry to you, right? But for me, where I was able to see his vulnerability, I see him for what he actually is. So the way it works is as follows. The biggest tzaddikim in the world are the ones that are most deeply embedded within the physicality of the world. Moshe Rabbeinu was very wealthy. You know that Moshe Rabbeinu was very wealthy? The Yudan Nasi was very wealthy. What does that mean that they were wealthy? Physically, very wealthy. Once they got in touch with the physicality of the world, once they realized what it truly was, they were no longer scared by it because they understood that the arrogance of the world to say that I exist independent from God, was the most godly thing that the world could say. And once the tzaddikim come to the world and they say, and I mean this, when I say the world, I mean all of us, once they come to us and say, this thing that you have that you think is really the opposite of godliness is really your most godly part, then massive changes start to take place. So going back to our mashal about this guy, once that guy realizes that all his macho stuff is really just insecurity, what happens to the macho stuff? Right? So it starts to dissipate, right? Because he realizes, oh, it's just insecurity. And what would happen if I actually fed that insecurity? No, it's fed it, I mean nourish it. I don't mean like fed it, like continue with the insecurity. I mean, what would happen if you actually healed that insecure part? Right? So now a person, let's say, this, the same kid who was like bullied as a kid, right? And you start to go, oh, I, I'm not defined by the fact that I was bullied as a kid. Right? I'm just, I was a normal human being going through something, and I chose to deal with it in this way. Right? It starts to become human to him and understandable to him. So then massive changes start to take place. So the biggest tzaddikim go deeply into the physical world, into the exiled nature of the world, we'll explain what that means in a second, and they start to tell the world, this thing that you hate about yourself is really the greatest expression of godliness. Like let's say, let's say an alcoholic, right? You know why an alcoholic drinks the way they do? You know what 12 Steps says? Because they're the most spiritual people. Right? They're yearning for spirituality, and they don't know how to get it, so they fill it up with drugs and alcohol and all of those things. That's why we know that alcoholics who are in recovery are some of the most special people you've ever met. Right? If you've ever met somebody who's truly in recovery, I'm talking about people that have like been in recovery for 10, 20, 30 years, these people are mind-bogglingly impressive, because they were able to discover within the exiled part of themselves that pure godliness that was within. So it's, it's a massive transformation that takes place. What, what is exile? What's the transformation? So the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, and this is, again, a mind-boggling idea, the definition of exile is the lack of belonging. 
That's what exile is. Take a second and think about it. You'll see it will resonate very deeply. Every one of us has a part of us. I'll say it out loud, but I, I know I can say this with all confidence, that every one of us is experiencing something like this. If, if, you, if you dig down for every one of us and you find, and you go into like, okay, we're, we're going to express like all of our insecurities. We don't say it out loud, but whatever insecurity you have about yourself, at the bottom of that is a sense of unworthiness. It's like, am I really worthy? Like, who amongst us can say that we're really worthy? We all have our different things, our inner negative beliefs about ourselves that say, I'm not worthy of love and connection, which is a fancy way of saying none of us feel a deep sense of belonging. By the way, when you meet people who have a deep sense of belonging, who have gone through the exile to discover the belonging that, ex that exists within the lack of belonging, those people are amazing people to be around. I have a friend who lives out in Cleveland. He has the most belonging of anyone I've ever met. He's totally comfortable with himself. It's like being around him is, is it's, a, it's a nuclear reactor of, of love and connection because he's so deeply comfortable with himself. I actually saw him parenting his child last year. This kid, he was in this kid's school, and I was in the kid's school together, and the kid was cutting davening, and he said to his son, he's like, where are you supposed to be right now? He goes, I'm supposed to be in davening, but I, I really can't sit still right now, so I'm, I'm choosing not to be in davening. And he's like, he goes, okay. And I was like, you're not going to tell him to go back to davening? He goes, no, he knows that he's supposed to be in davening. And he's going to live with the consequences of that. And whatever happens, he's going to be okay. And I'm going to be there for him if he needs. And I was like, I would tell my kid, like, get back to davening, right? But, but then, I, like, in thinking about it, because I spent a lot of time thinking about this interaction, I was like, Whose stuff is that? That's my stuff. That's my own ego saying, I need you to go back to davening. Because that kid needed not to be in davening at that moment. And the father has such a deep sense of belonging within himself that he's transmitting to his son, it's okay to be where you are, which is a very profound kind of thing to do. And it takes a tremendous amount of work on oneself to have that reaction instantaneously. And he's an amazing person. But you only discover that belonging within the lack of belonging. You have to be willing to dive into the exile of I feel a deep sense of unworthiness to discover the worthiness that's embedded within the unworthiness. So, for example, a person believes that because I did an Avera, I'm no longer worthy of God's love, right? And then they counter that at some point in their life with the Gemara that says, that even though I did that Avera, I'm still a Jew and I'm still infinitely connected to God. So there's a sense of belonging that exists within the lack of belonging. And this is what Avram Avinu chose for us. Avram Avinu said, I'd rather have the rectification, though it's much longer and much more painful, but it's active, of the discovery of self. Not the soul being cleansed by God, but the soul's discovery of its own essence from within the lack of belonging that exists within this world. Going down into the places that are the exact opposite of godliness, to discover the godliness that exists within the lack of godliness. Recognizing that everything that we are bears the mark of our maker. That's the secret of Gaulus. That's the Torah of Gaulus. Now, if a person knew this, think about what type of perspective they would have. Think about the nevuah that a person would have. Like as a parent, right? What type of perspective would you have if you knew that your child needs to go through the gullus of life, which every one of us does, how would you, as a parent, how would you watch that play out, right? Because I'll share with you, for those that are not parents, this is the way it goes. What you'll initially want is to fix your child's problems. That's your initial reaction. So let's take a classic example. Your, your ninth grade daughter, who was popular in elementary school, 
comes home and she's bawling, crying, goes into her room, closes the door and doesn't want to talk. And let's say you're a good dad or you're a good mom, you gently knock on the door and you sit on the bed and you don't say a word and you're just rubbing your daughter's back and you go, I'm here if you want to talk, right? And you don't, you don't go anywhere, you just stay there for like five minutes. That's the way it goes with it. It takes like five minutes, but you have to be willing to sit through the five minutes of uncomfortable silence. Then after five minutes, the kid makes a choice. And what's the choice? The choice is to talk. And, the, and this is what it sounds like. I had all these friends for all of elementary school, but now in ninth grade, do you remember this? In ninth grade, I all split off. And you have that like existential crisis of who are my friends, right? Because we were friends, it's like very dramatic. Boys don't have any of this, by the way. <laughs> Boys just punch each other. It's a beautiful thing. You know exactly where you stand, right? And it's like in ninth grade, it's like, I was friends with those girls, but then I tried to be friends with these girls, but it didn't work out, and now the other group doesn't want to take me back, so I'm in no man's land now. You remember that? It's very painful to watch. Now, as a father, and now there's one girl who's excluding me from the group, right? And that whole, like, ninth grade female, I'm going to bully you into an eating disorder type of reality. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm only partially joking, but it's, like, really sad what happens. As a father, you know what you want to do? I'll tell you as a dad. I can't speak as a mom, but I'll tell you as a dad. You know what you want to do? You want to call up the parents of that child and say, well, you have a choice. I could murder your child, or your child could like be you know, allow my daughter back in the group. But of course, if you do that, what are you doing? You're robbing your child of the opportunity to go through that exile, to discover the self within the lack of belonging. So you make the very, very painful choice to go, you're going to be okay. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I just want you to know as you journey through this, I'll be here next to you. It's the only thing you could say as a parent. Now, it'd be much easier to do the social engineering, though. It's much easier to call the parent of that child and go, please speak to your daughter to not be a terrible human being as she's going through this process. But if you do that, you're cutting off your child's legs. This was Avram Avinu's choice. Gehenim, right? It's passive. You don't have to do anything. You're cleansed of the physicality of the world. You live in a state of pristine godliness. Or you could discover godliness. That's a pretty good choice, no? Thousands of years of terrible pain, of a lack of belonging, of pogroms and crusades and holocaust and the like. But within all of that, we discover all the truths that Claudius Yisrael has learned over the last several thousand years. What are those truths? Number one, we only have each other. Right? That's a truth that, for our generation, you're learning now firsthand, right? All the, all the quiet anti-Semitism of the last you know, 30 years, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, globalize the intifada, right? Uh, we learned that no matter where we are, nobody could rob us, rob us of the things that we have inside of ourselves, right? You could put us in a concentration camp, but we'll still smuggle in our tefillin if we can, and we'll still strip away whatever clothing we have. And, and light it on Hanukkah to make a menorah, right? We've learned things about ourselves that we never would have been able to discover had we, gone, had we not gone through the pain of history. But here's, the, here's the, the last bit, and we'll finish with this. You can only discover the belonging that exists within the lack of belonging as long as you don't over-identify with the lack of belonging. So there's a process in psychology called unblending, have you ever heard of that term before? Unblending means um, that, for example, you start to over-identify with a part of yourself. So let's say, for example, a guy will say, no, Debbie, I am a bad person. Like, I, I 
don't daven. Like I haven't daven for a long time. And it's like, no, you're not the you're not your action. You have to unblend from your action. You are a pure soul, although kind of not to be tahori. And there was a part of you that didn't act in the highest possible way. But a person has to unblend from their lowest self in order to be who they actually are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The process of unblending means if you go into exile and you say, I am my exile, then the show is over. That's it. It's the end of the line. Because if you are your exile, you can't possibly leave. But if you unblend from the exile and you say, I am not my lowest moment, now you have the capacity to leave the exile. Because I'm not the lack of belonging. I am a person who deeply belongs. But I have a part of me that's felt like I don't belong for so long. Does that make sense? So go back to Yochevet. So who's the 70th one? Who's the one that completes the secret? It's Yochevet who's neither here nor there. She's not born within the Gaulus. She's not born within the Triumph. She's deeply connected to life before exile, because that's where she was conceived. But she's born Benachomos, right? So she lives within two worlds. She has a part of her that's within the exile, but a part of her that was never touched by the exile. So the secret of Gullus can only be discovered as long as you don't over-identify with the exile. That's what's happening in therapy today. Everybody who's going to therapy is going to learn one thing. The part of you that you're dealing with is just a part of you. That's 99% of the work. A person says, I am OCD. No, you're not OCD. You have a part of you that's OCD. You are not your OCD. You are not your anxiety. You are not your depression. That's 99% of the work. Now, once you've unblended from that part, I can learn what it's trying to do for me. I can learn how it's trying to protect me. I can work with it because it's just a part of me. In fact, I might even grow to appreciate that part. I'm not saying there's not a lot of work there, but so much of the work is just to stop identifying by your lowest moment. A person can't go into exile if they think, I am my exile. So the final stage of going into exile is the message of Yochebeth. You're not the exile, which is, of course, who are Yochebeth's children? It's, it's, it's Miriam, it's Aaron, and it's Moshe Rabbeinu. Of course the redemption comes from Yochebeth, because Yochebeth was never really a full participant in the exile to begin with. And that's what we're dealing with today. In the final moments before Mashiach, everybody is in the process of clarifying for themselves so who am I? That's the question, right? It wasn't 80 years ago, people were like, Jews were going off the dark because like, maybe I should be a communist. I've, in the, at least in my kind of career, I've not yet met the kid that's going like, maybe, maybe I should be a communist. Like, I don't know if I have to be like an Orthodox Jew and put on film. I really am into communism. I haven't met that kid yet. Why not? Because that's not the avoda of this generation. It was the avoda of 80 years ago. There was an intellectualism. It was like, how can I rectify the world? Today, kids aren't worrying about rectifying the world. Kids are like, maybe I'm addicted to Netflix. No, but like, seriously, look at my screen time, right? There's, what's being Moshechi? What's, what's that whole movement that I need to watch YouTube for seven, eight hours a day? What's that, what's that move of like, I was on YouTube shorts for three and a half hours, right? What's that move of, I'm, I'm going to watch Netflix and minimize the screen while I'm scrolling on Instagram and Twitter, right? There's, what is that? What's that loss? It's a loss of consciousness. It's a, it's a loss of being. It's I can't be with myself. I don't know how to be with myself. The reason I don't know how to be with myself is because I'm so deeply embedded within this exile that I can't pay attention to the pain that I'm going through, that every one of us is going through. 
So the answer is to start to adopt the Ocheved type of personality. It's not an accident that every single redemption that's occurred throughout history was Beskos Nashem Sedkaminos. It always came from the women. It didn't come from the men. The reason it came from the women is because there's a feminine movement of nurturing that exists within ourselves of being able to unblend from these parts and recognize who we truly are. That's the Avod in these final moments for Mashiach. And especially now. Especially, especially now as we're being once again pushed into this corner of a lack of belonging. Am I allowed to be here in Los Angeles? Will I be attacked for being in Los Angeles? If I walk down the street, will somebody scream free Palestine at me? Globalize the Intifada? What are we going to experience? What does it feel like, right, if we we actually paid attention to the feelings? What does it feel like, personally for me, sleeping in my bedroom for the first four weeks of the war, and that every single night I felt the vibrations of not tens, not fifty, but hundreds and hundreds of booms every single night as I heard the Iron Dome going off. Hundreds, every single night. We don't want to pay attention to those feelings because they're deeply uncomfortable. But the real feeling is, and this Sonny Perlman spoke about this on, uh, on his Meaningful Minute podcast that he did. Sonny's an old friend of mine. We go back a million years. He said, trauma is the feeling of being unloved. And how many of us today are willing to pay attention to the fact that all of us on some level feel deeply unloved? None of us want to say it, but like, does the world acknowledge our right to exist? Don't, it's not about Israel. We know it's not about Israel. Because if I'm walking down the streets of Pico Robertson and somebody goes, globalize the Intifada, it's like, I don't even, I'm just here right now. I'm just a Jew wearing a yarmulke. Why are you screaming that at me? The answer is because there's a deep lack of belonging that we're all experiencing. But within that lack of belonging, what's the opportunity? The opportunity is to clarify who we truly are for HaKadosh Baruch And in that source, we should be Zayichet Ebrit Mashiach Tzadkeinu. It's coming soon, yes. Um, going back to the Avram choice, did he, was it part of the choice that if we go through um, Gullus, then we would also have to go through Gehenna as well? Right, meaning we don't, we don't have to go through Gehenna in the way that it was originally like structured. Right. In other words, obviously a, a body still exists in this world and the soul will have to go through a level of Gehenna. But the point of creation now is not to go through Gehenna. The point of creation is the active discovery of self. Connecting from Hashem, from within ourselves, a choice that we make, as opposed to a choice that's sort of given to us from above, of like, I'm pulling you in. It's, it's like, imagine if you, if you have an intervention, and you go to a friend, and you go, you need to go to rehab, because you're, you're very messed up. Right? So that person might go to rehab, and it might work, but that was sort of from top down, as opposed to the person who hits rock bottom and says, I need to go to rehab. That process in rehab is going to be a very different process precisely because they chose it from within themselves. Okay. Yeah? But then why is Gehenim like this thing that is, it seems like we're being punished? Yeah, and I think when you... Like when, if you don't do this, then... Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very childish way of understanding Gehenim. The, the, a more profound adult way of understanding Gehenim is not so much a punishment, but much more the natural consequence of leading a deeply physical life. Right, so Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, the Gemara says that normally the soul leaving a body is like pulling a, f- a feather out of tar, right? And a white feather out of tar, first of all, it's, it's uncomfortable to extract because the tar holds onto it. And also the residue of the tar is on the feather, right? Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu, because his body was so purified, because he at that point had reached such a level of shlemus, so it was like pulling a feather from milk. In fact, the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara says, 
saw no reason to leave, even when the Malachamavis said, there's a place for you under the Kisayah Kavod, Moshe Rabbeinu's soul said, there's no difference between this body and the Kisayah Kavod. So for that level of Tzadik, there's no need for Gehenna. For people like me, there's a deep need for Gehenna because I'm, we're physical people and we exist within the physical world. Yeah? No, go ahead. So I have a couple. What a beautiful interaction. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple questions. Sure. So, since Avinu chose both, um, we an understanding that whether it was Mitzrayim, where we lost four fifths of the people, and then two thousand years of Gullus, where we're the, so many hidden. Then now, so the pain of that Gullus, like each one of us is going through a Gullus, but yeah. The gullahs have known their, they never got it, and right. they never bought in, and of course we all have enough gullahs. Okay, so that's one question. The other question is, as a parent, so I see the one with the ninth grader, totally get that, right? So as a parent. Okay. Second part, though, is if you don't speak to the parents of this young woman, right? She will then be 18, 24, 34, unless she goes for therapy, because why, if someone doesn't tell these parents, your daughter has a problem. Right. Besides my, whatever is affecting my daughter, which she has to go through, because right. unfortunately I've seen this, where then you see this young man, young woman, who is a mess with a horrible marriage, and... Because yeah. they never got the help right. at 14 of the whatever they're doing, manipulation, bullying. Right. So who's, who's job? Of course, your daughter or your son has to go through whatever they're going through. But who's going to help this yeah. young well, woman, this young man? It's a beautiful question. If, if you don't help them, right. they're going to be a mess for years. Right. So I, I, can only, I can only attempt to answer both of those questions, and both of those are very profound questions. Uh, the first thing I would say is it's true that four-fifths of Mitzrayim was left behind, but we know that in Yemos Mashiach it'll be different, because we're living in a post-Tarsinai world where HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose us. And since HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose us, He chose us for no reason. And if you choose something from beyond reason, so then there's no reason not to choose. So the difference between the Gullus of Mitzrayim, where four-fifths were left behind, and Mashiach, is that nobody will be left behind. Now you'll say that... Yeah. And, and if you're saying throughout history, but there have been so many Jews that were, so to speak, left behind, so I would only say, and maybe this is not a satisfactory answer, but maybe let it sink in, is we're all one organism. And so if we look at it through the lens, not of that one soul in that particular time, but as part of this macro organism that is Qal Yisrael, we're all coming back. We're all in a process of tshuva. As for your second question, I'm only referring to the process of letting a daughter discover her own path, of course I might have a responsibility to say to another parent, I'm not saying this to solve my kids' problems and my kid's going to be okay, but as a friend, we live in the same community, I want to share with you this is what's happening, so you'll have the opportunity to educate your own daughter. And if I don't feel that I could do that as a parent, it might be of service to go to the school and have the school intervene. Again, my, my point was not to say, was not to, take, not to not take responsibility for that kid. Of course, we have a responsibility to both the bullied and the bully. And what we know today is that the bully is 
in a tremendous amount of pain. The bully might have the bullied kid might have been targeted for a reason, but the bully behaved that way because they were in pain also, and that pain deserves to be seen.